Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting right now on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, for sharing stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We are broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country and Redfern is the site of resistance and resilience of First Nations peoples. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Daniel Sargas. I'm Tanya Ali, and you may remember a couple of shows ago, we celebrated Lunar New Year with Alison Chan and Justin Tan. Today marks another New Year celebration. It's called Naruz. It's the Persian New Year, and it's celebrated by so many different people from heaps of different ethnicities, faiths, and diasporas. And I caught up with a few people who celebrate about what Naruz means to them. You're going to be hearing that soon. And later on in the show, uh, we're going to be speaking to Oliver Twist about his play Jolly, currently showing at Griffin Theatre Company. We all went to see it uh, the other night as a bit of a Race Matters excursion. Darren, how did you feel afterwards? You know, it was such a feeling I realised I hadn't felt in like a long time and that feeling was being amongst a group of people witnessing this completely vulnerable and powerful and complicated and intimate thing just like unfold before you and feeling like everyone in the room just got it you know you can just sense that everyone got it it's a play about displacement and violence uh physical and structural and it's also about joy and connection and belonging and it feels so corny to say but <laughs> i'm just like cringing thinking about like i could feel the audience like breathing through their masks together like people were like gasping at the same time like laughing at the same times um listening to oliver tell his story so yeah i loved it how good is theater that's so good when it's good it's good yeah absolutely <laughs> i loved it too sara khan caught up with oliver about writing the play how he uses comedy as part of his storytelling and what the story does to you once it's brought you in This is Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. And today marks the first day of the Persian calendar. It's called Nauruz. I caught up with a few people who celebrate to learn more about the holiday and what it means to them. So Nowruz is a really significant time and a special holiday for Iranians. The actual um, translation in Farsi is New Day, and it's the first day of the Iranian calendar, which falls on the March 
equinox, the first day of spring. Nowruz is based purely on rebirth of nature. And Nowruz is celebrated on the day of astronomical vernal equinox in the northern hemisphere. In the entire world, in one moment, the rotation of Earth around sun is completed. So it happens in one second in the entire world based on nature and based on astronomical calculation. That's Marasa Farjad, an educator, celebrant, and community leader. Before that, Melody Forgani, the director of 23 and an angel volunteer here at FBI Radio. You'll hear more from both of them in a sec. But yeah, today's the day. At 8.37pm tonight, to be precise, Sydney time, families all around the world will be celebrating Nauruz. It's a hugely significant event in the Persian calendar, celebrated by people from Iranian, Kurdish and Afghani communities, certain communities in other countries such as China, Bangladesh, and of course, diasporas of all of these communities the world over. Here's Melody again. I was born in Iran in 1991, and when I was three years old, my family and I came to Australia. And I've been really lucky that during this time, growing up in a country that's not my own, my family have really been able to celebrate these, you know, significant dates and events in our family's life um, so that, you know, Persian culture doesn't feel so far away from us. And I do feel like it is a big part of my identity today. Growing up, just because of how the date always lands closely to Easter, I think when we were very young, we always did activities like, you know, those like shrinkable wraps you could get over eggs, like you'd put it over the boiled egg, put it in hot water and like shrink wraps it. Yeah. So a lot of the things were like Easter themed. But as we grew up, I think my parents incorporated more and more of like our Kurdish tradition and culture into it. And a big part of that was lighting a fire and in like Kurdish culture people actually like will dance around the fire and jump over it so there was like this big transition from like when we were very young and trying to fit into our like you know western community um so we're doing like very like anglicized activities and there was a big shift as we grew older we're very much like trying to keep our Kurdish roots there and like it was just a lot of dancing music celebration and so I really appreciated that and it meant so much more that holiday for me. My name's Tanita Razaghi and I'm a Kurdish woman from Western Sydney. Tanita's also a volunteer here at FBI. Many of her favourite memories of Naruz as a kid are so embedded in not only her family, but her wider community growing up in Western Sydney. Oh my gosh, lighting fireworks. <laughs> like, we'd have little, like, crackers and things like that that would, like, light up and that was, like, really fun. Super illegal. <laughs> I don't even know how we would get them as kids. But, yeah, you would always, like, know kids from around the area, especially, like, out Blacktown Way. You would always, like, buy things off the kids around there and, like, fireworks. You know, just area things. <laughs> yeah, it's just, like, a lot of fun. Yeah, a lot of music and, yeah, a lot of good memories from that time of year. While Nauruz itself has secular roots, it's also really important in certain faiths. It's significant not only as an Iranian, but also a member of the Baha'i faith, which is an independent world religion that was founded in Iran in 1844. So on the Baha'i side of things, you know, it's a celebration. It's one of nine Baha'i holidays where work is suspended and it is really marked by the end of the fast. So Baha'is from the beginning of the month 
will fast until uh, March 19th. And during that time, it's about abstaining from food and it's a reflective time of year um, and also a really joyous time of year to kind of prepare your mind and body and soul to the year that's ahead. On the Iranian side, it's also a really festive time and a really um, important time, similar to what New Year's Eve and day is, I guess, in Western culture. My name is Pejan Khosronejad. Uh, at the moment, I'm creator of Persian art at the Powerhouse Music Altimo and adjunct professor in the School of Social Science at the University of Campus. Pedram has curated an exhibition at the Powerhouse called Iran Zamin. As part of it, there was a huge celebration of Naruz there just today. The exhibition itself is on for a while and explores the stories behind rarely seen artifacts from the middle of the 19th century to now, shedding light on Persian social and cultural histories. Our exhibition is open from March uh, 19 to August 8. So five months our exhibition is open to the public free from far, uh, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. We have many, many public events, talks and seminars regarding the collection and mostly the provenance of the object and all are welcome to come and join us. Yeah, you can find all the details about Iranzamin at maas.museum slash Iranzamin. And while today marks Nauruz, much like most holiday celebrations, quite a lot goes into the leader. So Nauruz is not only Nauruz Day. So four weeks Normally before the news, we have a very funny tradition. We call it shaking house. <laughs> and with mom, with children, and all have cleaned, shine the house and everything in the house. Windows, glasses, everything should be cleaned again, like new. And parents buy new shoes, new clothes for children. And around a week before news, we set the table half which is very traditional, not sacred, but not religious, but very symbolic in matter of elements of the table, which again is very ancient. Half meaning seven, and seen is the seven items, and every single one of those things symbolizes something, either good health, prosperity, life, enlightenment, kindness, everything. So the seven items on the table, we prepare and everyone tries to make it as elegant as possible. And at the moment when the year changes, which, uh, as I said, is astronomically calculated, we all know what time it is. So a few minutes before the actual change where the media announces and they count down like we do in January in here, they count down 10, 9, and it gets and then as soon as the year changes, everyone gets up, kisses each other, hug each other, and put sweets in each other's mouth to make life pleasant, and elders give gifts. So before, few minutes before the change of the year, people are sitting quietly around the table and contemplating on the good wishes they have for themselves, for their family, for their community, for the world. And then uh, they say, at that moment, I think the wishes will hopefully come true. A really fun memory that I have is the actual putting together of the Hafsin together as a family. I don't know if this part of it is really part of tradition, but our family always gets goldfish, puts it in a bowl. Um, we grow 
this wheat grass in a kind of circular fashion um, and it's kind of similar to I guess putting up a Christmas tree and decorating it with your family um, it's really just a time to celebrate the year ahead and obviously in the northern hemisphere with it being spring and the end of winter you know the, the, the celebration that comes from that too and the celebrations continue on. So two weeks after the date of Nodos, it's Siang Zibadzed, and you actually go to the park and celebrate it, and there's some things that you throw away. We have a sifra where there's like plants and things like that that you grow in preparation for that date, and then you throw it away into a body of water. So everyone collectively just rocks up to Parramatta Park and starts chucking things into the water. <laughs> and it's just it's not even Kurdish people it's everybody that celebrates that holiday so it can be like people from the Afghani community people from the Iranian or Persian community and so you see a lot of people that you don't have any connection to but it's such a wholesome feeling seeing everybody just rock up to chuck pieces of grass into the water <laughs> it just makes you realize even though you sometimes feel isolated and you feel like you don't see anybody from your community or some people who don't look like you or celebrate you or speak the same language when you all just like rock up full force on a Saturday you're like oh wow there's like a lot of my people out there in one of those national Christmas day my mom was pregnant for my youngest sister and um, she was in labor but she didn't say anything because she didn't uh, ruin the preparation that everyone has done and everyone was dead and she was tolerating the pain and in the middle there was one of our friends was a physician so he said told my mom are you in labor and she started crying and that is and on that day my sister was born oh my gosh (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's amazing vivid image of one of those events that's Merasa Farjad with a, a truly wild Nauru's memory. This is Race Matters. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. And yeah, if you celebrate uh, Nauru's Mubarak, and thank you so much to Marasa, Pedram Kosronajad, Tanita Razagi, and Melody Forgani for sharing those stories with us. This week, the Race Matters crew saw Jali, a one-person show written and performed by Oliver Twist. It chronicles his life as a young refugee fleeing Rwanda to Malawi, settling in Ipswich and then moving to Sydney. And it's in parts heartbreaking, it's hilarious, all of it powerful. It really makes you reconcile your place in the world as a child of the diaspora. Here's Oliver Twist on how he's feeling now that his show is underway. Two shows in and um, I'm feeling... Pretty good. Very good, actually. Um, It's been really such an experience to kind of share this story that's lived on the page for a while. Mm -hmm. To actually get it up and running on stage has been a very, very fulfilling experience for me. And the whole creative creative team involved as well. Yeah, I can 100% imagine that. I mean, the story that you tell from your conception and birth amongst um, the Rwanda conflict to your present day life here in Sydney was a tremendous journey that you took the audience on. It had such a brilliant balance of um, comedy and honesty as well. Um, What was your experience of bringing this story to the page and now to the stage? The experience is when I got to Sydney three, four years ago now, I wanted to share this story. So I'd written it literally after I arrived and just started shopping it around and sort of evolved into like a shape that it is right now. But in my head, I was like, this is, I was very aware that it was a heavy story. Um, 
and I wanted to, you know, infuse it with the with as much humor and bring a balance to it. So I'm glad that you enjoyed it and you find it like a, a journey that is fun and moving at the same time. That was my intention. Yeah, I think that's um always my favorite form of storytelling yeah right it's 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 such a fine line yeah it's so you know yeah and um you just achieved it so effortlessly i mean the comedy in it was just so heartwarming um and also really um like it interrogated a lot of bigger issues as well um has comedy always been your chosen engine for storytelling yes so i started doing stand-up comedy uh in brisbane uh, not Ipswich because there are no rooms for comedy <laughs> in that town. Um, yes, and I, I wanted to pursue it further, so I moved down here. Yeah, I started performing in like bars and pubs and all that, and then sort of slowly building up material from like 30 minutes to like an hour. Mm. And then I did solo shows like at Sydney Festival and Melbourne Fringe, and I was like, I think I have enough to kind of infuse that story that I do have and bring all those two things together. Yeah, I mean, comedy in itself is like so intimidating. <laughs> <laughs> how how um how were your feelings like being on stage and moving through the comedy space into the theater space now because I mean, was it more challenging coming to theater cuz like in my mind I feel like doing the stand up would be like a bit more confronting. <laughs> really? It's it's interesting like that because for me the challenge where um, sort of like the parts that I know quote-unquote comedy in the show, that was the real challenge and sort of like the the patience with it. With mm-hmm. comedy, every, every sentence is like a setup to a punchline yeah. or like it leads, leading to a joke. In this case, you just have to like in theater – um, and with the stories that are not funny, it's like you have to stay in it, which was a real challenge for me. Like dress rehearsal, I was just like fast pacing <laughs> the whole thing. And it's like, no, slow it down yeah. and um, enjoy it, which is another thing you don't really get to do at stand-up shows, at least in my experience, which is like enjoy and be in the story. Yeah. Um, and the pace of theater, specifically the pace of this show, is, uh, I got to enjoy it while I was performing it, which is great. Yeah, I mean, doing this form of storytelling, which is kind of more um, centered around um, drama, if you were to like place it in some type of um, genre. And I feel like if you're um, kind of telling it from that starting point, do you feel like the comedy kind of just like grows naturally out of it? The comedy grows naturally out of it. Yes, yes. Um, I always have to have an issue, not an issue, but maybe like a a subject matter that I want to talk about on stage. And I will explore the humor surrounding that. So there were parts of the show that have ended up being purely story dramatic moment in the show that started out as as a humorous story. And I was like, okay, I think I can explore more into like the emotion of this specific story that I've just quickly got to the punchline. Yeah. Um, because I, I had no problem with that. Like I can generate jokes. I've experienced with that. But coming into the theater space was a, a real challenge of like, okay, let's explore the story. Let's keep digging and following where it takes us. Yeah. I it, Well, you know, the journey that you took us all on was um, 
really um, inspiring. I think we all walked away being like, we all want to go tell our stories now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I yeah. hope so. I hope so because the the title Jali uh, refers to a West African storyteller, poet, musician, and so on and so forth. And the one person show format is the perfect way to kind of tell stories like that. And I wanted to really tell my story myself yeah. um, because there's a lot of narratives about human displacement and people that are fleeing from their hometown to you know, end up in new places that are taught by other people, yeah. that are taught by journalists, that are taught by so on and so forth. It's more research and I wanted a more humane story, like a more humane experience to be shared mm. in front of people. Um, so that fit perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, coming out of 2020, which was, you know, a boring year, some might say. <laughs> a um, <blip. laughs> I forget really... 2020 was a year. I feel it like we be. went from 2019 to 2021. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but how did the events from last year shift the story at all, if at all? How did the events of last year shift the story? There's, um, there's a part of this... There's one story specifically that came out of um, sort of like last year when I was in lockdown where it was very reminiscing of me back being in a refugee camp in Zaleka in Malawi after we fled from Rwanda. So that was just a perfect storm of events in a way where I was like, oh, this feels like a place I've been before. Yeah. So we, I literally just went back and sat down and then brought that story and made it feel like fit into the story that I already had. Yeah. Uh, because Jali was scheduled to be last year uh, at Griffin Theatre. Yeah. And then we had to reschedule. You shared a lot of moments um, in the story as well um, of that ongoing conflict your family um, were dealt after fleeing from Wanda to Malawi and then the rejection from other countries yes. for relocation up yeah. until finally finding peace in Queensland only to be met with another form of rejection, which is the <laughs> racist suburban streets of this country. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, there's this continual sense of isolation and that feeling of trying to find belonging and safety only to have the post constantly be moved away from you. And this was this something that you, like, a feeling or an emotion that you were intending to kind of present in the story? Because I, I feel like this is something that many... Um, people of different diasporas often experience. Yeah, it, there's a there's a feeling of alienation in the um in the diaspora community and it's very vibrant and it's sort of it's sort of that very disturbing feeling that follows you everywhere. And if you're someone who's displaced, um you're going from place to place and you want to hope that you leave that feeling at some point. So arriving in Australia, I was very, very shocked and sort of like started being very conscious of the idea of racism. I grew up around people that looked like me for the most part. So yeah. it was never a conscious thing. I knew it existed outside of Rwanda, Malawi and Africa in general um, and within it. But to actually have it between me and the other and that difference being very like vivid was a very shocking experience. So for me, it was very important to explore those ideas and to just make sure that people understand where I'm coming from. And the last line in the show, uh, which is also on the post, is the, when the music changes so that it dance, 
is an old African proverb that really just goes to show you that when something changes, we adapt to it. Yeah. And if I know anything about my people and where I come from is that adaptability is is literally our strongest thing. Mm-hmm. We will adapt and then we will survive through it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something I really wanted to live through uh, throughout the show, like a little snippets and drops uh, for the entire hour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely something that resonated um, amongst the the beautiful audience that was there last night. It was I, so I, beautiful. Oh, it Everyone was, such was so a, great. Yeah, it yeah. felt so nice being back in a theatre space, but in a theatre space where there was just like black people all throughout the space. It was just like, oh, this is it's so hard to kind of get that in Sydney theatre. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's almost impossible. It, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely feel like those were um, what you shared with us there, like definitely resonated in amongst like, you know, our little group that was there too of, you know, feeling um, those like rejection and isolation, but then also remembering the resilience that you come from, from your ancestors. Absolutely. Yeah. And all of that, like, you know, being able to adapt and remain resilient. um, Yeah. And the the big part of that stems from understanding where you're coming from. mm. It took a lot to understand um, my heritage, however skewed, the history might be, which it is because of many, many circumstances, colonization list goes down. Mm. Uh, but to figure out where you're coming from and understand where you are in a moment in place helps you move forward, yeah. which is which is a great thing uh, for me that the work Jolly brought for myself, and I hope it does for other people as well yeah. that get to see it. Well, there's a line in your show um, that... Uh, it's when you're um, met with your elders that yes. um, massively <laughs> stuck with me. Yeah. Um, and it was um, leave your footprints, not your mouth. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I really need to go and reevaluate my social media. Just <laughs> 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 like everything about that, I was like, am I? Am I? Am I the problem? <laughs> like, am I doing the right thing by my old people <laughs> as well? I mean, like, it was such a strong statement and I feel like it speaks so much truth as well to the world um, we currently live in, particularly with social media as well. Yes. And um, I feel like we as Indigenous people, Black people, people of colour, we're often finding ways to live up to that statement because of what our old people cultivated and survived in order for us to um, have these minds and these lives. Um, How do you think that line kind of exists today amongst technology and how we interact with each other? That's a very good question. Thank you for asking me. When I wrote that part, so it's, that is my favorite part in the play. Oh, great. Uh, (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) And it's, it's an absolute line that I love. And I used to hear elders say to me all the time when I was a kid. And I didn't understand it until now. You know, when you're growing up in, you know, in a in a white space, in a white society, you wanna curve your own platform. You you wanna you wanna you wanna speak up and you should. But there's there's a limitation to, you know, making noise and making effective noise. And that's to me what that line really, really is getting at in that don't say things for the sake of just saying things, say things that you mean and say them at like intermediate points so they have an effective impact on people. And today everyone is like, you know, have that coin response. This is happening. This is trending. Okay, let's go ahead. And then it just becomes 
a cycle of like, oh, we're just regurgitating thoughts that have already been out there. It just stops being an effective way of communicating with people. Even with the platforms, you know, if like important movements and all that, it's great. You get the word out there, people show up, people protest and all that. But you want to have an effective moment where I reckon I I actually think everyone should just post once a day on their yeah. Instagram stories. That's about enough as I'm about to actually engage in and be like, oh, this is meaningful. Yeah. I'll follow up on this. Um, otherwise, you just end up on those Google holes, YouTube holes. Yeah, yeah, that rabbit and, hole. And yeah. then five hours later, you're like, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Am I making my old people proud? They're all looking down. I've seen so many memes about this of like, you know, our old people looking down at us, like getting stressed out from just like right, scrolling. From scrolling all day. <laughs> it's like doom scrolling and they're all just like, oh. <laughs> But, um, oh, my God, such a strong line. I feel like, um, you know, a lot of our old people here have, um, you know, said the same type of sentiment to us continuously as well. And it, um, I think that's why it um, shone, like, through so strongly as well because it was like, you know, we all kind of um, have this shared experience across the world because of colonisation. Yep. And how these, like, sentiments and... Um, these um, ways of living that have been passed down, how they've changed over time because of colonialism yes. as well. And it does become like a shared understanding amongst groups across the world that have um, felt the impact of it yes, as well. Absolutely. Yeah, no, yeah. it was, it, yeah, it was a really, um, yeah, profound moment in the show for me. And there was also another one as well. You had a, a really, really, the comedy in it was so great, but um, I think one of my favorite ones as well was when you're talking with a, men that lived in your building yes and he was apologizing profusely yes to you for the rwanda genocide yes and um you said you are a white man in australia i'm not the one you should be apologizing to yes um and i mean like colonialism like i said has affected the world over and you unpack that um in relation to belgium's colonial history in your ancestral homelands I mean, how did you come to understand the colonial history here and how its visibility is different in Rwanda? Right. In in Rwanda, it's very um, – you don't get to get on stage and speak uh, politically about the country in that way. It's a very sensitive issue there. And uh, I understand the opportunity in the platform and the privilege I do have to get to share these experiences, you know, uh, having left Rwanda. Um and coming here, there was there was an understanding of oh, there's history here, and and being a person that I am, I I want to know where I am. I want to know my place here, and I know that there's indigenous culture and indigenous people, and have been here before. So that joke evolved from being a place of coming to Australia when it was white Australia before. Everyone that comes here through resettlement, they have to be there's this feeling that they have to be grateful and they have to be grateful to the people that have led them here, which for the most part, I would say, are just white people. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then that line really just, I, I just go, excuse my friend, I just go and go be like, fuck you all. Literally, I go, white people, you got me here, but also look at before here, who, who are the people that were here? I think that's important. They want to, um, I think there's a there's a running theme of, wanting to skew the history and it's important to be able to learn from it and be able to move forward otherwise 
you move forward in blind innocence, which is not good. That's just dangerous for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's something that um, this country refuses to reckon with. I mean, we see it just even recently with Scott Morrison saying, like, you know, oh, you should be grateful that you can protest here because not that far away, like, people are being met with bullets for protesting. And it's like, that that happens here too. Like, you're all very willing to, like, pull your gun gun out if you have to, and you have. You've done it to Indigenous people. It happened to Kumanjai Walker and Joyce Clark. Like, yeah. you know, Indigenous people that were, like, you know, trying, that were in their homes and were gunned down by police, you know? So just, like, the it lie, just lies. It's, it's pure lies, and... It's it's to a point where I, I I think about this a lot. You know, mid the BLM protest last year, yeah. everyone started posting the black square, which just you know voiced down the whole thing. And I I'm very aware of Instagram, social media, and all that having this uh, symbolic nature of protest and allyness, and that really is is a cycle that would never actually have effective change. And all these politicians practice it as well. Mm. They go, oh, I should be grateful that you get to... Oh, I don't want to protest every year. Let's go deal with the issue. <laughs> yeah. it's, I'm not fighting my right to protest. I'm fighting for my right to actually have my rights. Yes, that's that right. Is, that is why I'm out here. Mm. It's not like, oh, yeah, let me go protest. It's like, no, every time I protest, you should hear me out. Mm-hmm. That is what really I'm trying to say. And, uh, yeah, all these politicians, they have their cunning ways of kind of doing it. And it's important that we see through that yeah. and we, we find a way to kind of like go around it and make sure that we have, you know, an impactful change and we're doing the right things that we need to do. Yeah. Well, what your old people said, you know, leave leave your footprints and not your mouth. Not your mouth. Yes. <laughs> it's important. It's important. It is very important. <laughs> um, you um, also, you know, talking about your um, when you come to Sydney, I mean, like for a lot of people of different racial identities, like when we come to the city, it's yeah. um, it's intimidating, it's daunting, but the communities that we find um, and the time that it takes to kind of cultivate and grow those communities, I mean, they they all vary in different ways depending on you know, where we come from. But um, it's really, really beautiful when the time is taken to cultivate those communities. I mean, like, how has your community in the city grown and influenced the story you're telling right now? Um, it's I've been lucky to go around and travel and do shows across Australia. So I've been in all different types of communities where I get to share my experience. And it's it's a great moment to get to a place where you have a shared experience as opposed to sharing an experience, yeah. right? Where people go, oh, oh, that's an exotic thing I want to listen to or pay attention to. It's like, no, 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 no. You get to a place where you have a community and you're like, oh, this is a, oh, you too had a mob retreat and you, oh my God. Yeah. And it's like, it's such a beautiful moment to kind of share those moments where there's similarities in both of your stories as opposed to, oh, this is my story and you get to watch it and you understand it. And that's important, Mm. but to get to that place, like you said, you find your community slowly and um, you find these people that you have a shared experience. And that's what I think at the bottom everyone is kind of looking for, really. Yeah, I mean, like, that really is, that that really makes a lot of sense, you know, because... You want to get to this point of um, being like, you know, 
realizing that like, oh, my story is actually not for you. Like, cause I yeah. feel like we always get, you know, like in a colonial space, like we're constantly getting told like, but how does your story make sense <laughs> to me? <laughs> and explain it to me. It's like, <laughs> Educate me. Uh, yeah. I was like, this is not an education. <laughs> this is a liberation. This uh, is not yeah. an education. At the very least is like, I'm, it's, it's also a thing where we expect, there's an expectation. So when I before I came to Australia, we had to take like a like a month, like we knew we were coming to Australia like a month ahead. And during that month, there was like like a class set up at the camp and you go go learn about Australian history and all that. And I wonder if everyone that's leaving Australia going anywhere else that's not Australia should do that. Ugh. Just a month of isolation at your home and you get to learn about that country as opposed to, oh, this is a like a like I don't know some trip of National Geographic that you're discovering the world mm. and I didn't I didn't want that and there's like that's something like, that Kentucky tools should probably introduce <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's like to, I'm not I'm not about to tell you my story about how about you come into my space mm. as opposed to we've been coming to your space for the longest time and you've been coming invading our space if anything mm. um. So there's it's it's an effort. It should be a reciprocated, you know, effort. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, um, you know, coming to that space as well where you feel like your most unapologetic self in your lived experience and your story yeah. as well. And it's, you know, kind of finding the balance in your own, um, you know, understanding of your diaspora. But like you said as well, like having your sh- shared experience and your shared story with your community too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we. What can we also kind of expect from you and your deadly creative engine in the future? <laughs> <laughs> I um I I shy away from talking about expectations. Um, but I am I am hoping to just keep continuing creating. And um, I, I have a few ideas in the bank. And after last year, I'm not one to kind of like set plans. I think everyone is like, oh, <laughs> okay, let's hold on to that yeah. and, and see how this plays out. And I play most things by the ear, uh, but I, I will most absolutely be around and continuing creating. Um, yes. Well, we definitely hope to say it because um, if last night was like just scratching the surface of it, I mean, like we <laughs> can't wait to see the years to come of your storytelling engine. Thank um, you. Because it was, yeah, it was a great um, space that we got to share with you last night. Um, we asked this of all of our guests that come on to Race Matters. Yep. And that is, Oliver, when did you realize there was power in your race? When did I realize there was power in my race? That's a very good question. Um, I always knew that. I absolutely always knew that from a young age. Um, it took a matter of getting comfortable to a place where you're put in a place where you can actually exercise that power, mm-hmm. which is different because it can be turned down. You know, uh, Oppression is an interesting thing. It's a very strong word. Um, and... To be oppressed isn't always, you know, like the violent sense. Sometimes it's you know, it's kind of misleading, subversive at, at best as well. Uh, so it took a it took a long time to get to a place where I'm like, oh, I think once they let once I let my foot in in the door, then I can show them my power. And it's also a, mi- a bit of misdirection where you go, okay, I, I used in the best sense with Jali, 
I used comedy to tell a very powerful story that I wanted to tell for such a long time. And with comedy, you you open people's minds. They're like, oh, yes. And then once you're in there, like, yeah, let me fuck with your mind a little bit. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's, there's, there's the power within you. And I think once you realize that, you just have to explore that and hold on to that. And the power for me was the ability to to constantly challenge myself, challenge other people that look like me, that don't even look like me, that come from my background, that don't even come my background. So it's the ability to, in the best sense of the word, say no. Yeah. Like to be able to look at someone in the eye and go, what you're saying to me, I hear it, but no. Yeah. I won't take that route. Mm-hmm. That's not acceptable. Mm. I want more. I want what I'm owed. And give it to me or I'll go grab it. That is Oliver Twist, the man behind the one-person show, Jali, on the power of his race. And rounding off an incredible chat with Sara Khan about what you can learn from your ancestors to propel you forward and make sense of your place in a diasporic world. We all saw the show. We loved the show. We highly recommend you go see it at Griffin Theatre, though I'm pretty sure tickets are extremely limited. Uh, It's on till the 27th of March, though, uh, and we'll pop up a link to where you can potentially snag tickets over at the Race Matters programs page, fbiradio.com forward slash programs and click through to Race Matters. That's all for Race Matters this week. I'm Darren Lasagas. I'm Tanya Ali. Thank you so much to our guests on today's show, Oliver Twist, Pedram Kosranajad, Marasa Farjad, Melody Forgani and Tanita Razagi. You can find every episode of our show at fbiradio.com forward slash Race Matters or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next Next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.